everybody and welcome to another episode of Green Through. Here today with us I am pleased to be joined by Greg Trinish who happens to be the founder and executive director at Adventure Scientists. In a few words, Adventure Scientists is a non-profit organization that equips researchers and other partners with data collected from outdoors that is crucial and essential to addressing environmental and human health challenges. That being said, Greg, I think it would be suitable to start with a little introduction regarding your background and you know how you uh, went about the um, setting up and founding of this uh, interesting project of yours that's been ongoing for quite some time now. Yeah, I started uh, my career as a explorer and uh, uh, spent years traveling around the globe looking for adventure uh, and found it trekking the length of South America and running expeditions in Mongolia and um, Botswana and, and, uh, I just consistently really desired, um, a way to give back and a way to make a difference while I was out there exploring. And so I was able to do that, uh, initially by becoming a field technician and, uh, out working on biological projects. I got to study owls in California and got to work on sturgeon and, and the Missouri river. And eventually, after doing a bunch of those, I just saw that there was this great opportunity. Um, I actually had a, another job tracking lynx, wolverines, and grizzly bears. And during that, I had started incorporating the public and bringing the public in. Um, and I just saw this opportunity. I saw that there were tens of thousands of people who love the outdoors like me. And, uh, and then on the other side, there was a science community who, if we could actually train people and give them the tools they needed to do something meaningful, um, it was pretty clear to me that this opportunity existed and, and the need existed. Amazing. So initial um, quests and adventures start as a, as a personal um, desire or was it driven also from the science, uh, science community, you know, having their requests and sort of mobilizing uh, a keen uh, um, adventure like yourself? Yeah, so early on uh, in our when I first founded the organization, uh, the model was a little bit different. So generally, we would have a uh, adventurer saying, "Hey, I'm going to Greenland. I'm going to wherever," and we would then find a scientist who needed data, who might need data from that area, and we'd call them up and we'd pair, pair the two together. But we realized that those one-off expeditions don't have as much impact. And so we've totally flipped it on its head. And, and this was a number of years ago now that we did this, but we totally flipped it on its head. And today, the way it works is that uh, we develop these projects over months and months and months with partner scientists and mostly institutions. And then we'll say, all right, we need 300 adventurers to go out and do this project and a thousand to do that one. And then our job is to find those people who are uniquely qualified to go out and collect the data. We train them and then, and then we manage them while they're in the field so that we can guarantee the quality of the data and, uh, and that it actually gets collected the way we intend. Wow, okay. So, and in terms of, um, what can I say, um, placing adventure scientists temporary uh, in terms of time, when, when was it founded? And uh, you know, how long have you guys been uh, running the show? Yeah, I started this in January of 2011, and so it's been just over 10 years now, or 10 and a half years uh, that we've been at it. And have you noticed that, you know, um, sort of the expectations have grown as well from the science community, seeing some of the amazing results that you've been able to contribute to? Or, um, you know, have they always been quite straightforward with the, with the demands and what they expect from adventure scientists over time? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's been consistent over time. I mean, the data quality is is something that we lead with. Um, I think uh, there's there are other citizen science organizations or efforts to get the public involved in data collection. And so often it's really focused on the experience and education of the volunteer, which is right. really, really important and, and something we care deeply about and put a ton of effort into. But really what we're trying to do is, is address these environmental and, and human health issues. And so when, with that as the focus, and that is what we optimize for, data quality becomes so, so important. And so that's been consistent um, throughout as a desire. I think we've learned more as the years have gone on about how to do that better and better. Uh, and so we take a ton of steps to make sure that the QA, QC, or quality assurance, quality control is in place. Right. Um, and that our data that gets collected is actually going to be uh, highly useful and, uh, and of the standard that the partners really need. Absolutely. And, you know, you briefly touched upon and mentioned the, the training and qualification of the um, adventurers and explorers that you sent out there. How do you ensure that, you know, they are, you know, what are the methods that you got in place in terms of training and um, qualifying them ahead of, uh, you know, sending them out to the habitat in question and, you know, for the for the project that you've been uh, assigned to? Yeah, so we do a lot of different things. So it starts with choosing the right projects, first of all. So we choose projects that we know are going to be doable by a non-scientist. Okay. And so, for example, we, uh, we focus on things where there's technology involved, um, where it's some kind of sensor that we're going to be deploying. It could be a camera trap. We use water sensors. Uh, we use probes for air quality monitoring, those kinds okay. of things. Um, and so our job in those cases is really to train people on the tech and how to troubleshoot the tech that, for any issues that may come up. And then the other is a collection of any kind. So we can go and collect air, water, soil, plants, um, you name it. And uh, with that, it's, it's so much of the work involved there is about you know, permitting and that kind of thing. But for the volunteer, um, those are the two that work the best. And then after we've chosen the right projects, everybody gets screened. Um, and what we're screening okay. for is that uh, people need to demonstrate that they are going to be starting from a place of comfort in the outdoors. Okay. So we're not looking for exclusively for Everest climbers or exclusively for <laughs> people who climb K2 or whatever. We're looking for uh, uh, an array of people across the whole spectrum of adventurers. Um, and what we're screening for is that they're going to be able to focus on those protocols um, okay. because they're not worried about, you know, am I dehydrated or too cold or too hot? They're used to being in the outdoors. Um, so they have to demonstrate that for us. And then uh, they all go through training. Uh, generally, those trainings happen online. Sometimes we can uh, augment them or, or uh, add in in-person trainings if the protocol is super complex, and we've done that quite a bit. Um, okay. Once somebody is trained, they then get certified to go out and collect data. We build right into the apps a bunch of uh, redundancy in the protocols, so people will get reminded to rinse their caps underwater three times if okay, they're collecting okay, water okay. samples, for example. People remember to stand facing upstream because we build that right into the questions. Uh, okay. And then uh, they also are equipped, obviously, with, with reminders, uh, printed materials that they bring with them in the field. And then from there, there's a team of people monitoring the data as they're coming in and monitoring the progress that people 
uh, have uh, made while they're out there to make sure that everything looks within the right parameters. Right. I mean, that's uh, quite fascinating. And in terms of timeframes, and you know, you mentioned that you, you do quite a thorough screening ahead of, you know, saying yes or no to, to a given project. Does the preparation, you know, is it, is it more or less of the same duration in terms of the actual completion and, uh, you know, throughout the project? Or is it more that the project tend to last longer than the, than the actual training ahead of starting the, uh, the project in question? Yeah, so trainings can take anywhere. It just depends on the complexity of the project from one hour to, you know, two or three full days. Um, okay. And then the actual data collection also totally varies. So generally, people okay. are going to register for a year-long period or a field season, which could be, you know, a couple months. And they're okay. committing to going out to a site three or four times during that period of time. Um, okay. one-off collections sometimes happen, but, but most often it's that we want to get that repeat and be able to create a temporal or time-based, uh, scale as well. And that's, sure. that's one of the reasons that a partner scientist is going to want to work with us is because we can not only scale geography geographically and, and cover the entire globe, but we're also going to, uh, be able to get repeat visits at sites. So for example, we've got this. Uh, project with the federal government. It's uh, it's uh, U.S. federal government, and we've got uh, three federal agencies that are the ones dedicated to the project and and our partners there. So that's uh, the Forest Service, BLM, and Park Service. Okay. And uh, we developed this project in concert with 18 different state agencies, with the EPA, and uh, ultimately we collect water quality data from more than okay. 200 rivers across the United States. And so it's done in a uniform manner at every site. We have um, already covered over 110 rivers in, in less than two years, in the last 18 months or so. And uh, the idea here is that we get each river a minimum of two times, but up to four times during the sampling period, which is uh, a four and a half year period. So I actually just got back uh, on Sunday from very remote Alaska up in the Brooks Range. I was collecting data for uh, that project on the Alatna and Noatak rivers uh, on the north slope of the Brooks Range. And it was, uh, yeah, it's just so spectacular. Normally there's hundreds of volunteers out and that is the case with this project. But once in a while I get to sneak out and, uh, and do it myself too. Amazing. And for this project specifically, what are you testing for, I don't know, the presence of microplastics, for example, or is it just uh, water samples alone and, you know, carrying out tests pertaining to the, to the water quality, for example? Yeah. So from 2013 to 2017, we collected the largest data set on earth for microplastics or what, or what we think wow. is the largest data set on earth for microplastics um, from more than 6,000 sites around the globe. Um, wow. Sorry, more than 3,000 sites, 6,000 volunteers plus did that. Um, and, uh, this project is a little different. This project is, is true water quality monitoring. So we, we have probes that measure pH conductivity, turbidity, dissolved oxygen, um, temperature. And then we've got, uh, samples that are being collected. So we have a little, a, a very light acid, uh, that you bring okay. into the field with you and, we train you how to make sure to handle that correctly. And, and you collect three different specimens that go to a lab. Um, the Rocky Mountain Research Station is the main lab that's doing this. And uh, what we do is uh, look for cations and anions, 
um, which are, you know, charged particles, basically. And then we have a suite of 55 heavy metals we look for. Um, we're looking for pretty much the same thing that uh, at a state agency would be able to test for in the field. We refrigerate everything. Everything goes into a cooler and then it gets shipped overnight to the lab so it can arrive within 24 hours. Um, so that's a key piece of it. If people are out longer, we test for a few different things um, and, and don't refrigerate because it's just not practical when you're on a longer expedition. Um, but yeah, there's probably close to, I don't know, 250 different or 200 different things that we're testing for in any given site. And then what happens with that is that the state agencies take that and then they, uh, they're able to basically prioritize where they put very limited resources across the U S the, the state agencies are historically and, and perennially underfunded. Um, when it comes to being able to manage water quality. And so they have to really divert those resources to targeted areas. And that's that's what we're helping them do is figure out, all right, you've got an issue over here. We got to focus on on that one. And uh, so it's quite, uh, you know, it, it, very significant in part of work that you're doing or at least contributing to. And uh, it was quite fascinating that you mentioned that, you know, the federal government is, you know, initiating and commissioning some of those projects. And I wanted to ask you and find out what are some of the other institutions and sponsors, you know, that are interested in the data collection services provided by adventure scientists? Yeah, so um, we have a variety of NGOs, businesses, governments that we work with. Um, you know, we are developing projects for universities in Saudi Arabia. We're, we're developing projects for um, quasi-governmental organizations here in the United States. Uh, and running projects in partnership with um, a, a diverse group of folks as well from WRI, the World Resources Institute. We've worked with uh, Stanford University and, and uh, University of Arizona researchers. We've worked with um, NRDC before. Um, and so, yeah, we what we do is, is scale data collection, both, again, on a time base and on a geography base or geographic base in a way that institutions just aren't equipped to do on their own. Um, and it's because we've, we've optimized for that. That's what we do. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite, um, I sort of gauge that, you know, universities would be interested in your services considering, you know, the breadth and scope of, um, of your reach. And, um, speaking of reach, what are, you know, some of the, what can I say, most exotic, um, sites and habitats that you've um, sort of um, collected data uh, collected data at over time and um, yeah it'll be quite interesting to hear about that if possible yeah we've had some really cool things there's a guy named Lonnie Dupree who's been a multi-time uh, explorer volunteer for us and uh, he went out and uh, climbed these glaciers in the uh, in the Himalaya that had had never been climbed before so first ascents wow of these glaciers and at the bottom of them are these really small lakes and he tested those lakes for microplastics back when we were doing that study found microplastics in there which made it clear that these things had to be airborne you've got a place where people just haven't been before um so we get stuff like that i mean we we collected the highest known plant life on earth from mount everest back in 2011 with lonnie and or not with Lonnie, with uh, Damien and Willie Benegas, the, the Benegas brothers. Um, and in there, we found so these five what? fungi that are uh, growing symbiotically. What? what did you collect? We collected, with the... yeah, it was the highest known plant life 
it was the highest known plant life ever discovered on earth. So highest elevation wow. plant life. So up at 22,000 feet. And previously the wow. record was like 17,800 feet or something. And I th think some plants have been found near that environment, but in there, there were fungi growing symbiotically with a moss that we found up there. And that's what made it possible for that moss to grow up at that very nutrient poor environment. And, uh, the partner on that project, a guy named Rusty Rodriguez, uh, took the samples and as part of, uh, he had other samples from other extreme environments around the world, and he's been able to isolate a fungus that will help crops grow. And so he works with uh, USAID and, and other groups in, in India, over 300 small farmers have used this inoculant to increase crop yields and in the most marginalized wow. lands, it, it even doubles them. It's amazing. Um, so these discoveries, you know, and, and then in addition to India, there's, there's three million plus acres a year that he's able to inoculate with these now, um, wow. and improve crop yields, which is just phenomenal. Um, we, uh, we had, uh, Mike Lebecki is an adventurer of ours when, and traversed the West coast of Greenland, uh, look, collecting data on polar bears. Uh, we've had people that are deep in the Amazon basin. We actually had people floating source to sea on the Amazon collecting samples. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, we've covered the globe. It's, it's pretty cool. Quite wild. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the main projects that you're currently working on? And uh, also since we've all been living in a, in a, in a um, pandemic dominated world, how has COVID influenced your services as well? Yeah. What, what's COVID? No, just kidding. It's been, <laughs> it's been, uh, COVID's been intense for, for everyone on the globe. I, uh, yeah. So initially we had to pause all data collection. Um, this was back in 2020, uh, first round of COVID and, uh, we figured out, you know, a few things. One is, you know, we were just causing, pausing then for caution and trying to respond to what was being asked of our politicians and, um, we slowly have been able to get people back out in the field. We take extra precautions and how we sanitize all the equipment and, and make sure all that's happening. Um, and then we ask people to be responsible and, and, you know, if there's travel restrictions or they're asked not to, to travel, then we ask them to follow those restrictions. Um, but in general, people going out into the wilderness hasn't been stymied like that that's right been my right. savior at least is i go out mountain biking <laughs> and i go out into the woods i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't have made it through this pandemic if that wasn't the case um but uh projects we're working on now is that what that wild and scenic river project i mentioned that's the federal partnership um so again more than 200 rivers there we've got about 600 volunteers that will ultimately go out for that project wow um, uh, we are also collecting data for, uh, timber species. So we okay. collect what are called genetic and chemical reference libraries for timber. Okay. Uh, and so we go across the range of a species. We started with big leaf maple, which runs from about Mexico, uh, up about halfway into British Columbia. And, okay. uh, we collected specimens there across the whole range of that species, thousands of them that help, uh, identify the origins of the, the, so you take the genes and you can narrow down where a tree came from within about 30 kilometers. And so when wow. you have um, lumber that is then suspected to be poached, and this is a huge issue, it's $150 billion a year are sto stolen out of forests around the world. 
And so when you take a shipment or a, or a, a group of lumber and you think that it's been poached, you can compare the genetics in those boards to the standing forest and narrow down where it came from within 30 Ks. And often with that resolution, you can say, all right, we're relatively certain that this timber didn't come from where you said it came from uh, okay. because it's illegal to, to take, you, nobody has a permit there. Um, right. And so we're doing that species by species. We're onto our fifth species now. We're currently working on black walnut uh, and okay. doing that Eastern black walnut. We're doing that in about 30 Eastern states across the U.S., um, I mentioned we're developing projects with universities in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere um, that are all about, uh, we're doing one to look at halophytes, collecting salt-loving plants um, okay. so that we can improve crop yields as desertification happens and as soils become more degraded, they become higher uh, salinity, uh, halophytes right. being salt-loving plants and uh, so we're developing a project to collect samples of those across the globe. Uh, we're working on a project. Uh, we just completed the development of a project and are hoping to be able to launch this sometime in the next 10 months or so, um, where we will be ground validating satellite data that's identifying wow. the land use or land coverage of 10 meter pixels for the entire globe. And so what this does is it allows governments to uh, monitor the degradation of their forests. They can they can study, you know, it's moved from this crop, soy to wheat um, and acreage. It also is going to be open source. And so okay. the access that governments get will be the same access that a small NGO gets. And they'll be able to monitor um, the changes of forests, the changes of grasslands. The, you know, it's, it's literally um, all biomes on earth. And, uh, right now the algorithm is launched live. There's a partner of ours called impact observatory, uh, who launched a product that can do what, what's called tier one. So it can say, these are trees, this is an ocean, okay. this is water. Um, these are grasslands and we're going to be training the algorithm to be able to go uh, further in that and not just say these are trees, but these are, uh, primary or secondary forests. It'll be able to say this is broadleaf or, or coniferous forests. Um, and that's going to be a huge, huge service to conservation around the globe. How much has burned in a given year uh, with the fires that are rampant across the globe right now? All of that is going to be possible through computers and satellites. Uh, and so we go into the field and we actually test what the algorithm is seeing and confirm okay. it. Uh, and then train the algorithm at the same time to learn more. Undoubtedly. So, and in terms of um, seeing that we're heading towards, you know, an ever-changing climate and uh, ever-changing unpredictability tied to the climate, do you think that, um, you know, the on-the-ground services provided by, you know, your volunteers, you know, sent out there from adventure scientists will be ever more frequent because you know the, the our landscapes and our ecosystems will be impacted and uh, will be changing ever more so you know in order to communicate and uh, pass on the more up-to-date data you know you will have to have people on the ground actually passing it on to the algorithm and then being mirrored online right yeah i mean climate change is is nothing new right like this has been <laughs> i think everybody is seeing that we're getting to these points of no return and it's getting more and more scary every day, bigger storms, bigger fires. Um, but environmental issues and challenges have been around forever, right? Like it's pretty much since the industrialized world began happening. And so 
the need has been there all along uh, and the need for boots on the ground to study these changes that are happening on the planet from human activities is there. Um, we need to understand what's happening in order to preserve our own species, but not just ours, to every other species on the planet too. You know, you've likely heard we're living in the sixth mass extinction, um, but it doesn't have to be that way. There are ways we can live much more harmoniously and in balance with nature. And anything that adventure scientists does is going to be with that uh, and goal of lessening the impact that we as a species have on the planet. So that means when we can uh, help a new technology, I mentioned the DNA sequencing that we're doing for timber, for example, that's a great example of how improvements in technology can further conservation. But in order to make that successful, you need these reference libraries, you need boots on the ground. Um, you know, for the satellites, obviously incredible advancements in, in satellite data and what's possible from satellites. And, and the difference between an image and a map are pretty vast. A map can tell you um, so much more than just an image can tell you. Um, but the, uh, the reality is, is you need boots on the ground to train those algorithms and make sure that those algorithms are uh, accurately collecting the data that they are. Now that may not be true in the future. As technology continues to evolve, we're gonna need to continue to adapt and evolve as well. Uh, and, and we'll figure that out as we get there. But today there's this tremendous need for climate change uh, and climate adaptation really. We work more on climate adaptation because we're looking for solutions. We're looking for where we can really, uh, again, mitigate our impacts and help species survive, including our own. And so that means that just studying the sinking ship is, is not what we're doing. Um, looking for how to help species adapt or, or uh, mitigate the effects of climate change is very much what we do. Yeah, I agree. I don't think you could have said it any better. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's quite interesting when you talk about large scale projects. And I want to ask you, how are you able to go about the what can I say, finding and, you know, um, recruiting of, you know, large scale uh, volunteers for large scale projects? Do you, um, you know, do you run, you know, have you got your own network of uh, people that you, you know, trust and reach out to? Or, you know, how do you go about the, the sourcing of this, uh, what can I say, uh, committed individuals? We have a different marketing strategy for each project. Um, okay. But generally, uh, you know, the, the, the most successful thing we've seen is that if we get influencers in any given sport, so surfing, you know, we worked with Lakey Peterson on a project and uh, wow. Mike Lebecki, I mentioned, is uh, one of the world's greatest expeditioners of all time. Jeremy Jones has been a, a volunteer for ours. Those folks have such great followings when they go out and collect data for these projects, they can then promote it to their networks and we get okay. more people than we can handle most often. I mean, on the Wild and Scenic River project, we haven't even had to do that strategy, but we already have a wait list of 400 plus people uh, on there. And the Timber Project, we've got a wait list of people. I think we're still accepting applications for that now, but we're, we're almost full on that um, and we'll start the wait list there soon. Um, but volunteers, people are so hungry for what can I do, right? People want to do something and we're sick of sitting by and, and, you know, the experts will take care of it or whatever. People need to be involved and want to be involved. And I think they feel the, 
the fear and the um, not fear, but the, the urgency, the urgency of now. And they and they know that if they just do nothing, that these problems don't get solved. And we give them an outlet for that. And I think that's why people flock to these to this idea and, and people are hungry uh, for more and more opportunities. And so that's actually where we're more limited is finding the right projects where data is the limiting factor. Um, and that takes a lot of work, it takes a team of people who are out at conferences all the time and who are out searching for those projects, uh, meeting with different institutions and, and helping get us in front of those institutions as well. I mean, thanks for the opportunity here, Eric. And, and hopefully there's some scientists out there who can dream big and think about, man, if I had unlimited boots on the ground, what would I do with it? Uh, and that's, that's what we really want to create. And you're the answer. And uh, I think, you know, this is one of the concluding points that I wanted to ask you about. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned it yourself that do you think that you can, you know, I don't know if you've been, but going forward that you can become an ever more uh, significant inspiration, you know, for other movements and organizations to be set up where, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, multiple PhDs and, 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 um, and masters. You can also, you know, go on the ground and uh, just ask the right questions, put up a, put, put your boots on and, uh, you know, go explore and uh, try and be part of something bigger. Because I think we're, we're, there is a decentralization pattern in our society now, you know, with EVs becoming ever more prominent and, you know, crypto. And uh, I think, you know, people want to feel part of something. And, you know, if, if it's about, you know, collecting data while also being outdoors, then, you know, it's, uh, it's quite, it's quite the, the, the solution in place, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, in citizen science as a movement has grown so much in the last 10 years since I started this organization, which is people who are non-scientists collecting data and, and, you know, public participation in scientific research, democratization of science. It's got a lot of different terms. Um, the reality is, is that we as global citizens all have an opportunity uh, to be part of the solution. And, and every single person who sees this can choose to come and work with us, or they can work with any other number of organizations that are doing citizen science, or they could get involved in some other way. I mean, it's just being involved and, and with connectivity the way it is today with the fact that, you know, Zoom and, and things like this are now happening in a remote world. There, there's no reason that people should no feel limited in, uh, and what's possible and, and ways to get involved. Yeah. And that's not to guilt anybody. It's if you have the desire and if that's something that's important to you, uh, but let's stop talking about things and let's, let's do something. And, and every person has an opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as one of the concluding remarks, I wanted to, you know, what can I say, shed some more light on some of the amazing work that you've done. If you could rank the top three, um, Maybe not personal moments, but research milestones that, you know, uh, you've been able to contribute to and partake uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, what would they be? It's like asking me to rank my kids. Um, the, uh, <laughs> I'm really proud of a lot of the work that our team has done. Um, you know, from the microplastics project to the thing I mentioned about climbing Everest and finding these fungi that are up there to we work. We got the opportunity to work with Harvard Medical School. Uh, to help isolate genes responsible for antibiotic resistance um, to um, these genetic and chemical reference libraries for timber, which is now being used to prosecute timber theft 
Um, I'm, I'm just really proud of what we've been able to accomplish in 10 short years. And I think the next 10 years for me are about scaling the impact even further and being able to work with bigger institutions um, that are really at the cutting edge of, of making sure that we can feed the planet in the wake of 12 billion people going to be on the planet or 10 or whatever we end up, whatever the number ends up with. Um, and that we can mitigate the effects of, of not just climate change, but microplastics pollution and, and uh, the other impacts that we're having on this planet as well. And, and if Adventure Scientist is responsible for one iota of making, being part of that solution, I, you know, that makes me proud. It makes that the, the work that we're doing matters and, and um, that we're accelerating and amplifying the real geniuses are the scientists here, the people who are sure. are dedicating their lives to these solutions directly. And we just get to be of service to them. They're my heroes. These are people who are out there um, at the cutting edge and, and and just exploring the 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 realm of what's possible, what we can do as a, as a species to live more harmoniously. And, and I get to amplify and accelerate their impact. And that is just absolutely amazing i i feel so fortunate to be able to be part of those things i mean in a way you are what can i say nature's most uh, important broker from that point of view right because you're contributing to uh, groundbreaking research on on her on a, on a continuous basis and you know one of the concluding remarks that came to my mind i wanted to ask you so you know you your work is cyclical right so you know the water collection samples that you're collecting on behalf of the federal government the the timber analysis that you're conducting you know on the on the west coast of the united states currently and you know they are carried out over quite um you know a, a stretched time frame do you think that going forward you know you mentioned that you would like to embark on new and novel um research projects do you know do you how do you think that you'll be able to juggle the two you know current projects that you've you know, you've taken on board and then, of course, you're not going to decommission before they reach their end and also taking on new ones. Uh, you know, I will, uh, quite interesting to to find out uh, from you, you know, how you'd uh, like to juggle the two. Yeah, um, we're going to go where the impact is. And, and so there's much more work that we can do on past projects and including disseminating the data. We open source everything so people can come to our website and see those data sets uh, for free. And uh, we also, um, we're going to go where the impact is. And so if, if there's an opportunity to benefit, um, you know, across any sector, agriculture, climate change, you name it, um, we're going to figure out how to staff up and, and make that happen. It is challenging. We've got uh, this boom bust cycle where, you get a new project, you got to staff up, that project ends and it, it, you got to staff down. Um, so that's challenging for us for sure. But the idea would be that we staff up and, and we're trying to do that in a way where people aren't working on just one project, where they're working on multiple projects so that we don't get caught in that cycle. Um, but, you know, we'll scale the organization as uh, as opportunity presents itself is, is the basic answer there. Uh, and we'll, we've got an incredible board of directors that's helping us um, do that strategically and, and do that um, smart so that we don't end up in that boom-bust cycle. No, amazing. Uh, I look forward to your, you know, 
ever-growing uh, prominence in this, you know, groundbreaking uh, applications of the research that we need in order to, you know, continue adapting and, you know, living in harmony with an ever-changing climate. So, uh, you know, thank you very much, Greg. Uh, couldn't thank you enough for the time. And, you know, are there any, you know, um, things that you'd like to mention regarding, you know, some of the latest developments going on Adventure Scientists? This would be the time for you now if you wanted to. Yeah, uh, no, I really appreciate the the forum here. And uh, people want to get involved with the organization, they should come to our website, adventurescientists.org. Um, you know, we need philanthropy to support what we do as well. And so anybody who's uh, so inclined, would we would welcome you to join our team in that way as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll be I'll be putting the link to the website in the in the bio on uh, for the podcast anyway. So they'll be mapped there as well. So thank you again, Greg. Um, keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, I'll be keeping a close eye on the amazing work that you guys are doing. Awesome. Thanks, man. Really appreciate you.